Good evening, everybody. Welcome inside the Villanova Basketball Report here in Bluebell, Pennsylvania. My name is Bob Long, and so excited to bring you Villanova basketball coverage. We do it weekly here on BLS. Alongside me is good friends Kevin Long, Kevin McClernand. McClernand down there in Baltimore, Maryland. Kevin Long right here in the studio. And as you see behind us, Jermaine, shoot the basketball. That is going to be a theme here tonight. What's the most efficient lineup for this Villanova basketball team going forward? They won at home against Creighton. I wouldn't call it in the most uh, um, exciting or uh, convincing fashion. And then on the road at Marquette, they came back into the game late but left some opportunities out there on the table. We're going to talk about Phil Booth uh, losing a little bit of that efficiency that he had in the early stages of Big East play, and then Jermaine Samuels really not figuring out what his role is. Saw a little bit of a blip as he did take a couple shots against Marquette. But, Kevin, first to you. The week that was in Villanova basketball, they started being 9-0. and They got to 10-0 and in the conference with the win in overtime against Creighton. Down to 10-1 and now, up to number 13 nationally in the rankings. Your thoughts? Yeah, so first uh, and, and most obviously is that this team is struggling a little bit right now. We've seen them start to struggle over the first couple of games, um, you know, in the past couple of weeks here. Phil Booth is not playing like he was in the beginning of the season and has really changed the dynamics of this team. Uh, but to start, I'm going to focus on something that's been pretty encouraging for me, and that's been the play of Sadiq Bey. I think he has come a long way since the beginning of this season right now. I think he is taking good shots right now and hitting uh, especially threes at a high rate. I think he's been able to drive to the basket successfully. I think he's trying to uh, find that uh, within him at the moment. Uh, I think his play is really encouraging. He's been a really good 3 and D guy for this team the past couple of weeks. That's something I would love to see more of from, from Jermaine Samuels. I think his defense has come a long way. I think it's something that he's focusing on this season. Um, and as we'll get to, I would like to see him shoot the ball a little bit more, get a little more of that 3 in him because he can do basically the same thing that Sadiq Bey is doing for this team right now. And now we'll go to Kevin McClernand down in Baltimore, who we'll bring on now. Kevin, welcome to the show. How are you, my friend? I'm good. It was, uh, I mean, one-on-one isn't too bad for the week. Uh, I mean, especially going at Marquette, so can't complain about the Nova team overall in the past week. Okay, but tell me a little bit about what you saw out there for this Wildcat team and uh, that comeback that they exhibited against Marquette. Well, before I get to the games, I want to point out, you said number 13 in the country, but to note that they were left off the top 16 yeah. of the initial committee's rankings. I mean, still plenty of time to go, so uh, really just doesn't mean much right now, but uh, just to, as of note. And, I mean, yeah, you have to be happy that they were able to close out the Creighton game. They, they kept their fouls uh, so they could force a tough shot uh, towards the – I think there was two seconds left after they used those two last fouls uh, since they weren't in the bonus yet or in the penalty. Um, and then coming back at Marquette was, was encouraging. It certainly was, and so we now turn our attention after that Marquette loss to what should be an interesting week as they play Providence at home, 6.30, and then St. John's, a, a rare Sunday afternoon slash early evening tilt, 5 o'clock, 
at Madison Square Garden. That's going to be a challenging week. Providence is a team that is down near the bottom of the Big East standing. In fact, we have the Big East standings here that we can put up on the big screen. Providence at 4-7, and 14-10 overall. But every one of these games, it seems like, for them, on rare occasion, you know, maybe they're blown out. But just about every game they find themselves in, uh, they played Villanova tough, you know, year after year after year. This team, a little bit different than teams in the past, but that game's going to be difficult. And then St. John's, again, just one game better than Providence, but all the way up at a tie for third place at 5-6 and six in the conference. And the rare opportunity for them where you're 5-6 and six in the conference, but very realistically in the NCAA tournament conversation, in part because they won so many games in the non-conference, but that was also driven by the weakness of the schedule. So that 17-7 and seven is very far from guaranteeing them any type of seeding implications in the NCAA tournament. A ton to play for for St. John's, who now realistically for the first time in a long time, if they can close out the regular season well with some momentum, now they host the conference tournament with a realistic shot to win it. Yeah, this is a very good St. John's team who we saw take Villanova to the brink at the Pavilion earlier this year. So this team certainly has the ability when you have a player like Shimori Pons to go to the NCAA tournament. Uh, I think right now they have the resume to do so, obviously playing Villanova tough at home and then uh, going up to Marquette and winning that game last week was huge for them. So. They have a good test in Villanova this week at the Garden. Uh, if they come away with that victory, I, I think that's that's a huge statement win for them. Obviously, right now they find themselves right in the middle of the pack in the Big East right now, uh, but they have some time to work with. They they can certainly break free of that pack. Uh, they could have the ability to establish themselves as the third team in the Big East right now. Uh, they just haven't quite done that. They haven't quite been able to close out some of these games. I mean, if they had beaten... Villanova in the pavilion, the first Big East game this year. Uh, this would be a totally different story. This team might be ranked. They'd be a lock-in for the tournament at this point, unless something unforeseen came up. So this is a, a very, very good team, a very dangerous team. Uh, and I don't think Villanova will be taking them lightly after what they did uh, coming into their house and leading the majority of the game, only for Villanova to take it right back at the end of the game. Well, it's interesting. We're going to look at Phil Booth's game logs here over the course of the show, but putting this up now in a 76-70, one win against St. John's for Villanova. Second one down from the top. You see he went 8 for 16 from the field, but more importantly, 6 of 11 from deep. And this is going to kind of lead the conversation of a big portion of the opening tip here tonight as Phil Booth's efficiency has gone away a little bit. But that game specifically, Kevin, that you're mentioning, Villanova does not win that basketball game if Phil Booth doesn't go 6 of 11 from deep, hitting the difficulty of the shots that he was hitting and really led to a very strong stretch for Phil Booth. And I'll say again, look at the rest of these games. Now look straight down, a bunch of wins for Villanova. I mean, Villanova scored 90 points the next week, 85 the following, 80 against Butler, 80 against Seton Hall, 86 against DePaul, 77 against Georgetown in a game where I thought they struggled offensively in many ways after a game against Providence on the 5th of January where they almost let Providence come back into that game, and then they won that basketball game against St. John's where it could have gone either way. Very much propelled this Villanova team through that gauntlet of the Big East schedule where... Remember, back in early January, they had just lost a game to Kansas. 
They had lost to Penn the game before that. Furman wasn't that far before. They played a good game against UConn, struggled through Providence. St. John's happens, boom. Biggest game of the year at that point in the Big East Conference and really that that linchpin for the rest of the season. That game goes their way, and they've been playing pretty well ever since. So uh, this kind of bookends that long stretch that started with St. John's. I think this is going to start to define the stretch run for the Cats. Yeah, absolutely. At this point, it's going to be all about how they bounce back from this. So, like you said, they really struggled for a while. It seemed like that St. John's win turned it around for them and really turned it around for Phil Booth. Not that he was playing particularly poorly, but he started playing like a superstar after that, and that lasted for about a month and, you know, the past couple of weeks, uh, last week or two, Phil has been struggling a little bit, like you just saw there. He, he, I think he was one of seven or two of seven in the past two games uh, from three, which is just each game. Gonna... So two of 14. Totally. Exactly. Each game. So, um, you know, we know that the volume of shots is going to be there no matter what they need. This guy taking shots, he's going to have the ball in his hands when it really matters. So this team needs him playing well. And in addition to that, you know, Colin Gillespie had an off game against Creighton and Eric Pascal didn't necessarily have his best game from deep against Marquette. And, you know, we really need all of those guys playing well and putting that together if this, if this team's going to go far. And it really just was not there. Um, over the past couple of weeks here, we've seen them progress to a point where, you know, they, they, were, lose, they were winning close games that they should be blowing teams out. But the Marquette game, uh, you know, they finally suffered their first loss in the Big East because of that. But... That being said, you know, Marquette's a very good team. Villanova's not playing their best basketball right now. To go up to Marquette and lose by one, not the worst thing in the world. You know, in fact, the polls show it. They still uh, went up to 13. So um, a lot of good things ahead for this Villanova team in the next month or so. Yeah, we teased Phil Booth, and that really is going to be the, the biggest part of our opening tip here on the Villanova basketball report with Bob Long. Kevin Long and Kevin McClernand. And now let's go to Kevin McClernand on this one. Question for you is Phil Booth. Break down the play that he's had so far in Big East play and what you've seen in the last few weeks, if there has been a change or if it's as simple as the shots not falling for Phil Booth. I mean, it's, it's easy to say simple as the shots not falling, but I mean, he, he hasn't taken great shots all year. Um, he's just been making some in, the, in those big games and at big moments he's been making them. Uh, I questioned at the beginning of the year, but he, he kept making them and making them. And I, I think it's just the law of averages adding up to him right now. Um, like Kevin said, he's got to take them. Somebody has to take these shots. And if it's late in the shot clock, somebody has to take it. So it's, it, if it's going to be anybody, you want it to be filled. Yeah, Booth is one of those guys that does have the ball in his hands late in the shot clock. We've talked ad nauseum on this show about how Villanova changed the offensive set to put Phil Booth on the ball initially more, to take Colin Gillespie off the ball. Gillespie is being asked to do less, although he still has the ball in his hands at times, and I actually saw him bringing it up more against Marquette than he had in recent weeks. But what that allowed Booth to do was to create earlier in the shot clock so that he wasn't heaving the ball quite as often at the end of the shot clock. Very astute point brought up to me the other day about Phil Booth and that when the game gets in the final stages, he actually resorts to penetrating the basketball more than he does in the first half. Now, again, 
that's going on an inclination based on what your eyes tell you. That may not always be true, and the statistics may not always back that up. But in this case, we'll have to call our friend Derek Gerberich at Stathouse Analytics, but in this case, I, I believe that's the case. And later in the game, especially against Marquette, Phil Booth was very successful getting to the basket. And you saw it earlier. We put his shot chart up. He was 7 for 16 from the floor, 1 of 7 from beyond the arc. So he was successful down the stretch. It was because of his ability to drive. If he can continue to do that but do it earlier in the game, play with that type of uh, you know, that sense of urgency earlier on, I think that's something that can really make a difference for him, can allow him to get better shots and thereby allow him to be more efficient, You know, to be more like what we saw in the – early stages of Big East play versus what we have seen from him recently. Yeah, and I think the other thing to go along with that is that the team around him is playing much better than than when the Villanova first started on this run. Like I mentioned before, Sadiq Bey is hitting three-pointers at a larger rate than he was before. Um, you know, We even saw Jermaine Samuels taking a few shots at the Marquette game, which could really open the floor up. So then you're back to another team that has five players on the floor in their starting lineup that can shoot the three. Sounds like last year, right? So at that point, we can open up the floor a little bit. We know teams are going to double-team Phil Booth down the stretch especially. you got guys like Colin and Eric who, for the most part, are hitting threes at a high rate. And now Sadiq and Jermaine Samuels are starting to come along a little bit. So I think their ability uh, you know, and getting better as this season has gone on is only going to open things up for this team. Hopefully open things up for Phil Booth. He won't have to take as large of a burden on himself and, and really just help this team do a little bit better spreading the ball around than they've done so far this season. I think Phil Booth is one of the best high degree of difficulty shot makers that we've seen at Villanova in a very long time. And that is... Not saying that lightly. I mean, players like Scotty Reynolds, players like Randy Foy going back to the 2006 era, uh, players like even Jalen Brunson in recent years. I would say players like Eric Paschal, you know, Dante DiVincenzo, even the very, very recent guys here that have been able to hit difficult shots. Phil Booth has as much of an ability as any of those guys. I think that compared to like a Jalen Brunson, and this point was made to me on two occasions on – uh, two different wavelengths, but that the decision-making for Phil Booth is not quite what Jalen Brunson's was. Uh, it wasn't quite what Ryan Archidiakonos was, but that perhaps he's actually a better difficult shot maker than either of those guys were. Yeah, it seems more like Phil is the new age of point guard where we you know, had guys like Ryan Archdiakno and Jalen Brunson who tra- played a more traditional point guard role looking to pass first. These guys had the ability to shoot Absolutely, but it wasn't what they were looking to do first, which you kind of see, you know, in the, the Russell Westbrooks of the world in the NBA right now. That's kind of what Phil Booth looks like right now. You Obviously, know who he looks not like? to the extent. Shimori Pons and Marcus Howard, too. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Again, I would say to a lesser extent, uh, we saw Marcus Howard on, on, uh, st- on Saturday, and Phil Booth was definitely not up to that level. Uh, we'll get to that, but... Uh, yeah, he, he looks the same as them, where he's t- looking to shoot first. You know, certainly an excellent passer, but that's not his main thought going into a play. I teased this earlier on. This is Phil Booth's game log, game by game, from the beginning of Big East play. And I want to start with St. John's, but really Providence is all the same. 
Let's go with St. John's on the eighth. That's very efficient. Eight for 16, that's from two-point range, and then the far right column is three-point range. Creighton, nine for 14, four of seven from deep. Incredibly efficient. Great game for Phil Booth against Creighton. Xavier, eight for 16, and five for nine from deep. Incredibly efficient from Phil Booth, considering that he's the number one option. I mean, keep in mind, okay, you can say that you know, Colin Gillespie might have been four for seven, uh, and, and Booth was five for nine, slightly better percentage for Colin Gillespie. However, however, Booth was taking those shots all else equal with a higher degree of difficulty in making it. So that is really the thing that I think we have to remember, whether he created that situation for himself or because Jermaine Samuels is not looking at the basket when he catches the ball, Phil Booth is taking difficult shots, and he's hitting them at a high clip. Butler, a little bit of a struggle, one-off game. Seton Hall, 8 for 15, 7 for 13, for, uh, 8 for 15, excuse me, 7 for 13 from beyond the arc. Incredibly efficient in that game. DePaul, 7 for 16, 3 for 8. I would say that that's a good game, a solid game from your number one option. And then Georgetown, 5 for 15. Creighton, 5 for 17. Marquette, 7 for 16. For, from a total field goal percentage isn't bad, but the one for seven in that game to go along with you know that the the seven for sixteen and he struggled against Georgetown and Creighton as well. The last three games for Phil Booth have been an issue, and that will whether he can rectify that will be big for the Cats going forward. We'll get Kevin McLernan back in on this one. When you hear statistics like that, and really that one outlier in Butler through the first. Ten games, uh, nine games of the Big East schedule. You know, what does that say to you now that the last three games or so uh, have been quite the struggle, and have you seen anything different uh, from Booth over that last three-game stretch? Well, I mean, we, we've talked about uh, who's bringing the ball up and all that, but I think Kevin brought up Colin Gillespie not playing that well. Uh, he's shooting a lot of threes lately, and we talked about last time how well he's been shooting the threes, but... I think he's been too reliant on it. I believe he shot 18 shots over the last two games, and 15 of them have been threes. So I think Gillespie, not only driving, but the threat of actually scoring and driving uh, could open the floor up a little for, for Booth to make some plays. Interesting. Is that? And do you have a sense whether that Colin Gillespie statistic and ratio that you mentioned is any different now compared to at the beginning of the season? I mean, I presume it was because he was dribble driving more and creating some opportunities, but... Do you get the sense or do you see on the statistics line that uh, that ratio of threes has gone up in those recent games for Gillespie? I just I don't have the exact numbers, no. It just seems to me that he's taking the large majority of his shots have been threes recently, maybe the last 10 games or so, since he got the concussions especially. Yeah, and I think the other thing is with the change of roles that we've talked about before now with Colin Gillespie playing more off the ball, I think he's just getting comfortable out there on the three-point line. He's comfortable as a two-guard. Uh, he, you know, he doesn't have to drive as much in that role, and he enjoys just sitting out there on the arc ready to shoot a three, and he doesn't feel like he has to drive as much as he did before when he was trying to be a point guard. You know, he's trying to drive and kick, and he's trying to create opportunities for other players, and and frankly, he's gotten too comfortable out there on the arc. So I would still like to see him drive a little bit more. Like you said, Kevin, I think he's just spending too much time waiting for the open three, spotting up out there, and not enough time, you know, moving without the ball and, and, and trying to create something when he does have the ball instead of just being a catch-and-shoot guy. You know, and I'm sure there are folks out there right now saying, 
what are you talking about? Gillespie still brings the ball up the floor, and he does. And actually, I think he has a little bit more in recent games than than kind of in the the brunt of that. Gillespie is the two guard. Phil Booth is getting the ball and bringing it up the floor. However, Booth is still getting the ball earlier in the shot clock now than he was the Kansas game, the Penn game. I mean, I think back to early Big East play. That all changed. St. John's, Creighton on the road. And Booth started getting the ball in his hands earlier in the shot clock, letting him go to work. So no matter who's bringing the ball up the floor, Booth began to run the offense a lot more. We do have a few comments on uh, on Facebook here. Uh, Cremo and Quinterly, right? We talk about Colin Gillespie and Phil Booth. And how much is on Phil Booth's shoulders? Solid point. We haven't even brought it up. Cremo, Quinterly have given Villanova nothing. Now, the cynic might say that Quinterly hasn't had the opportunity to give anything. Uh, I would say that he probably has. And based on what we did on the whiteboard a few weeks ago, his defense has kept him out of these basketball games. On the Joe Cremo side, hitting four or so threes since Big East play started is what's keeping him on the sideline. I mean, he was brought in as a three-point specialist from the University of Albany. He just hasn't been good enough. And as we talked about with Derek Gerberich from Stathouse Analytics a few weeks ago, he's also a defensive liability. So I'd love uh, you know, to see the, the reception that Joe Cremo would get if he could get out there and be effective from beyond the three-point line. It just hasn't happened, and I get the sense that he was a guy that was much more in the fold, obviously, at Albany. Had the ball in his hands a lot more often. And it's tough, like a pinch hitter coming off the bench in baseball, to come out cold, be asked to tee up two threes a game, never put the ball on the floor, and expect to make one of those, you know, at least every game. It's just a lot to ask. Yeah, he's a guy that you just want so badly to do well. He comes in here for one year. You know you only have him for you know his senior season, and you just want him to be able to come in and contribute right away. And every time he gets the ball in his hands, you, you think the shot's going in. You're like, all right, he's about to just hit his stride. He's going to find his old form. He obviously has done this before at the college level. We just need him to show it. Uh, he just hasn't quite panned out that way. Uh, his defense at times has been a liability. Uh, it seems like he tries to go for the steal a little bit too often instead of staying back and staying in front of his guy. Uh, and it really has just been a, quite a disappointment this year so far for Villanova fans. And then for Javon Quinterly, you know, he's a guy who's just not ready. You know, you can't. I don't think you want to push this kid beyond his limits at this point and get him frustrated. He's a guy who could. You know, eventually be one of the one of the best players of all time. It's at least the way he came in. That was supposed to. Wow. Okay. I mean, that was that was the mo, right? Yeah. I mean, sure. I I can't think of a a more highly recruited guy than Javon Quinterly that Villanova has gotten in recent history. It hasn't panned out so far uh, the way we thought it would, but. You know, another guy that you just want so badly to be in the game and to do well, and and everyone gets so excited every time he makes a shot because they think he's about to turn the corner too. And and those two guys have just really not quite gotten there, and it doesn't look like they're going to get there this season. Javon Quinterly, it's very interesting, and maybe it's not interesting him. It's interesting the students of Villanova. Every time he checks into the game, there's a loud cheer. I don't, I don't know what that is 
is that a belief? And let's go to Kevin McClernand. When you hear something like that, is that a belief amongst the student section that he's not getting the opportunity that he deserves to go out there and play? Um, is that something where it's like a faux cheer? What, what is that? Why is he, of all guys, the guy that gets that reception? I would say it's more of, we believe in you, we want you to stay here. <laughs> don't leave, <laughs> uh, don't transfer after one year. Because um, I don't know how much they believe in him this year, but they know how much uh, talent he has and how much he can contribute to his team and to the program over the next three years. Kevin Long, I want to go to the, to you on this one. I feel like you have a more cynical opinion, possibly. No, I don't have a cynical opinion. I agree with that, but I want to add to that as well. I think Javon Quinterly has a huge social media presence, and I think students know that. Uh, you know, I think he's had. Oh, know, we figured that out after the Penn game. Yeah, or at least I figured it out after the Penn but, game. Others probably knew that before uh, but, I did. Right? Yeah, we all remember <laughs> that, but. But bigger than that, he's you know had some celebrities on his Instagram story, and people follow him. You know, I, I mean, something that comes back to me. It seems stupid, but um, my girlfriend, who is a graduate of Villanova 2017, I was talking about Javon Quinterly and how this guy was supposed to be special. She had no idea who I was talking about, and then she said, "Oh, wait, are you talking about Jelly? Like people know Jelly." I swear to God, it's, that's insane. It's the Instagram <laughs> thing. I think that's why students know him and like him so much. I agree that it's definitely part of they know that he was supposed to be good and they want him so badly to be good. But I, it's in this age of social media, yeah. and it's his social media presence that gets him so much love from the students. Beautiful. Sounds like uh, high basketball IQ there in the stands. <laughs> I. I just telling you how it is. All right, fair <laughs> enough. Fair enough, man. I am old, I guess. I just don't know sometimes. <laughs> Kevin, your thoughts? <laughs> yeah, I mean, if I, I didn't realize yeah, he, he was that big of a presence, <laughs> so I mean, uh, if, if that's that's what it is, then that's what it is. But um, I, I still think he has a lot to contribute to this team, um, and I'm glad that the if if they mean it or not, whether it's on the court they believe him or not, I'm glad they're cheering him on. This is the Villanova Basketball Report. Bob Long, Kevin Long, Kevin McClernand. Uh, we're, we're dating ourselves here uh, with, with, from an age perspective. But uh, want to switch gears a little bit. We'll hit this quick, and then I have it on the whiteboard coming up in just a few minutes. And it has to do with that back there. Jermaine, shoot the ball. Jermaine Samuels, and I, it started for me at about the Seton Hall game, uh, just wasn't shooting the basketball at all. He would catch it, and Jay Wright always says, catch to shoot. Shoot him up and sleep in the streets. And Jermaine just wasn't shooting the ball. This is a guy who went three for three against Temple, really lit that stadium up, and drove Villanova to that win in many ways. I don't think that's overstating it. Uh, starting early in Big East play, started not to shoot the basketball. So let's take a look at these splits here. The... Far right, two for five, starting with Morgan State, is beyond the arc. So Jermaine Samuels takes the first three-point shot of the year for Villanova against Morgan State, hits the first three in the history of Finneran Pavilion, and he's kind of off to the races. One for four against Quinnipiac, uh, one for three against Michigan, and he continues to shoot a lot of threes. Florida State, he does not. LaSalle, not many. 
three for three against Temple, two for six against St. Joe's. I mean, this is a guy, it's not Phil Booth taking eight, nine threes a game, but these are the logs and these are the splits of a guy that is confident and expected to take three-point shots. It's also not the splits of a guy who would ever get a red light and say you're not allowed to shoot. Okay, so that's Jermaine's first half of the year. Let's take the last seven or eight games that he's played in. One for two against Providence. That's the start Big East play. 0 for one against St. John's. 0 for one against Creighton. One for one against Xavier. And then right here, Butler and Seton Hall. When I began to notice that Jermaine Samuels, it wasn't just that he wasn't shooting threes. It's that he was being given wide open looks and wasn't even looking at the basket. And Donnie Marshall against Marquette did a great job as the announcer to the, the color commentator on that game uh, to make note of that and make that a big point of emphasis. Now, since that game on the 27th of January, I've been saying, hey, why haven't we heard anything about this? I'm not on the beat to some extent. I, I guess I used to be on a game-by-game basis, but you know, there are guys that go to these press conferences every single week and have an opportunity to ask Jay whatever they want. And perhaps they did, and it wasn't well documented, his answer, or he gave him an answer that wasn't really newsworthy. But, but really, I heard nothing about how from Seton Hall on, Jermaine Samuels wasn't catching to shoot the ball. I mean, I, you had me thinking injury, perhaps that Jay Ray is just telling him not to shoot anymore, but that wouldn't really make sense given his, given his percentages. And Marquette, through the first half of that game, it was exactly the same thing until... Until coming out of a timeout, and I believe it was Lisa Byington, who is the sideline announcer, along with Tim Brando and Donnie Marshall, said that Jay Wright looked right at Jermaine Samuels in the huddle and said, if you're open, you need to shoot the basketball. And shoot it, he did. Coming right out of that timeout, a high ball screen, Marquette commits two on Phil Booth because... If Samuels isn't going to cut and he's going to hang on the three-point line, given his last month and a half, why wouldn't you leave him be? But he catches in rhythm, hits the three. A few possessions later, same play, catches in rhythm, three. A few possessions later, head fake, as now Theo John has to come out and guard him. couple dribbles to the basket, draws the fouls, either the fourth or the fifth on John, and it's like, okay, this now gives you a fifth score on the floor. And it was huge for Villanova. In very many ways, it ignited their comeback. So the question is, looking back at these splits, what happened from Butler to Creighton? And why was it so visible that Jermaine wasn't able to shoot? And as I mentioned on the whiteboard, I'm going to talk about how defenses adjusted and how the offense changed for Villanova over that time frame. But first to you, Kevin Long. Yeah, so I... It's something that sort of mystified me because Jay has always been known as a guy to encourage his players to shoot. Really, you know, you see the shots that Phil Booth takes. You see the shots that Colin Gillespie and Eric Paschal takes. He never criticizes anybody for taking a bad shot, really. He's he's one of the, the few coaches that doesn't really give anyone the red light. Now, we've seen it at times where players have – maybe stop taking as many threes to find themselves a little bit, you know, dating back to the 2011, 2012 days, back to James Bell. He struggled a little bit. He kind of didn't take many threes, sophomore in the junior season, and then he kind of turned it around a little bit. And then you think back to Eric Paschal, his first year playing with Villanova, he was taking a lot of shots, mainly non-conference. And then during conference games, 
he wasn't taking any threes at all. He was working on driving. He was working on his defense. And that's what it seemed like Jay was doing with Jermaine as well. Now, I don't know if he actually said anything like that to Jermaine or if Jermaine just lost his confidence. But something happened there where Jermaine decided that he was not going to take as many shots. He was not going to even look to the basket. It was it was very apparent. He was wide open, like you said, and he'd be looking around for the next pass, not even really looking to dribble, which was weird as well. He he was not looking to make any kind of a play, just looking to dump it off to the next guy. So something was going on. Either Jay said something to him or, or Jermaine's confidence was just shot for a few games. But uh, I was really encouraged to see him shooting the ball a little bit more at Marquette. And he's a guy that this team needs down the stretch here. Yeah. Kevin McLernan, your thoughts? I mean, I think it's clear. The, the only thing that happened was that he caught TOS and it's contagious from Fultz. So uh, I don't <laughs> think he has it anymore. And uh, he's going to move on from now. <laughs> Thank you for that. I, I mean, I mean, we talked about it last week. It, it's just, it's really confusing because um, when he shoots, he looks fine. And it, it seems hard to believe that uh, Jay would give him red light. Um, just overall baffling to me. It is, and it's something that we're going to explore next here on the Villanova Basketball Report. Over at the whiteboard, quick commercial break. We'll come back, talk more about Jermaine Samuels. When he decided that he wasn't going to shoot anymore, how defenses changed their entire approach to guarding Villanova and how Villanova needed to change its offense, how that aligned with Phil Booth's struggles, and perhaps now how Villanova can move on and if Jermaine Samuels is indeed going to continue to shoot as he started to do against Marquette, how that's going to open up the offense for the Wildcats. We'll be right back. Welcome back inside the Villanova Basketball Report. Bob Long here at the whiteboard for V's and O's. We take a look at one factor in the Villanova basketball equation that's going to make things either life easy, life difficult, how they're going to adjust to an opponent, or how an opponent's going to adjust to them. In this case, it's Villanova's utilization of Jermaine Samuels and how his desire to shoot from beyond the arc in the last few weeks has changed and how that affects the defenses that go against them. So let's start with beginning of the year. As Jermaine Samuels was more than willing to take threes, at times maybe even a little bit too much, but he's a guy that could shoot from just about anywhere. Jermaine Samuels could knock down a corner three when asked to. That was the way he got things started uh, in the Finneran Pavilion in the first game against Morgan State. Against Temple, he was unbelievable from right here at the top of the key. And he'd be rolling as somebody was driving, dishing back to Jermaine Samuels right here at the three-point line. And he would pour it in, hit three shots in a row that really, really changed the whole aspect of that game. And then the other thing that he did so well was pick and pop, where he's down on one of the block areas, comes up to set a screen, and then whether it's Phil Booth, Colin Gillespie comes this way, moves along the three-point line. Now Samuels pops up right here. The ball comes back to Samuels, and he's able to pour in another three. 
Now, as we mentioned, that was fairly successful in terms of spacing the floor in the early part of the season and getting offense from somebody other than Phil Booth, Eric Paschal, or Colin Gillespie. But then Seton Hall came along, and he would catch the ball right here at the three-point line, let's call it on the left wing, and he would not look at the basket at all. He would immediately pass it to somebody else. Perhaps there was even somebody guarding Joe Cremo, Sadiq Bey here on the baseline, or he would feed it back out to the top of the key and restart the offense. I mean, this is a wide-open shot. He has all this room. He even could drive if he wanted to, but his head was down. He looked for the extra pass, and frankly, he looked scared while doing it. It got to the point where, against Marquette this weekend, this is over a five- or six-game span, where Marquette and Steve Wojciechowski understood that he wasn't going to shoot the basketball. So as Jermaine Samuels comes up to lay a screen and Phil Booth comes this way, the defender that was originally guarding uh, Jermaine Samuels now doubles on Phil Booth. As Booth's defender staying out here, the secondary defender comes in as well, and there's a double with the longer arms of Theo John along with Marcus Howard guarding Phil Booth. Jermaine Samuels didn't even cut to the hole, where if you're not going to shoot a three, that's where your value can be. He'd hang right out here beyond the three-point line. The ball would have to come to him because that's just where the defense forced the ball to go. And then he would either put the ball on the floor once and find it back to Booth or would just move it along the outside. Not even dribbling to the hole, as we mentioned in the prior segment. So really, very little value added from Jermaine Samuels, a guy who's been a monster on the glass. He's been a very good defender. But what he's done from a shooting perspective has been nothing short of mystifying in the last few weeks. It had me thinking, was he hurt? Did Jay Wright give him a red light? Or, or what the heck's going on? And we had really no clarity from the media sessions that Jay Wright conducted as well. Until Lisa Byington, who is the sideline reporter for the Villanova-Marquette game, comes out of the huddle and said, Jay was saying that, we, that the Villanova Wildcats need to be more assertive and aggressive and then he looked right at Jermaine Samuels and said and you need to shoot the basketball now that was the first time I've seen anyone in the media really address that this in fact was a thing first time I've seen anybody here Jay Wright put an official position on it so okay midway through the second half Jermaine needs to shoot the basketball according to head coach Jay Wright and very shortly thereafter, same play. Jermaine comes, sets a screen. Here comes Phil Booth. The double team comes as the second Marquette defender comes out to guard. Howard and John are here. Now a spot up at the three for Jermaine Samuels. The ball comes back to him and in rhythm pours it in from deep. Another possession, the same thing. Pops open for three off the screen. Booth's over here. Pour it back. Same spot. Pours it in again. Another possession. The exact same thing. This time, John stays with Booth. Or John stays with uh, Samuels, I should say, this time around. Samuels, head fake, gets John on his toes, drives to the hoop, and draws a huge foul against Theo John that led to him eventually fouling out of the basketball game. So that alone shows the value that Jermaine Samuels can bring. And 
I'll say this. If this was a ploy, it wasn't very well done because it was carried over weeks and weeks and weeks, and it allowed for three possessions of success. They can have this success every time down the floor with Jermaine Samuels if they choose. It gives you a fifth floor on, a scorer on the floor, gives you an opportunity for another guy to hit a shot from deep. And so what this really does is prevents double teams against Phil Booth or Colin Gillespie or another ball handler. It really is going to make a team playing zone. Let's say that a team is going to play zone here. And Phil Booth has the basketball. And now here comes Samuels up to lay a screen, right? Booth on this screen can still come over to the right wing here. A defender can follow. And, and really what this is going to allow... Villanova to do is force this defender to come up and now guard Samuels as Booth is over here on the right wing. Samuels pops up to the top of the key. This defender has to respect this, which now allows more room in here for a back-cutting Sadiq Bey, perhaps to use the baseline, versus if they're not going to cover Sadiq Bey, or if they're not going to cover Jermaine Samuels, I should say. Now this defender has to guard Booth. This defender can sag, leaving Samuels all alone because he's not a threat. And now Sadiq Bey over here is really resting against a more base zone defense that's not going to allow Bay to exploit the openings in the floor because quite simply there aren't any because this prong up here doesn't have to come out and guard the perimeter. So in so many ways, Jermaine Samuel's ability and willingness to shoot the three is going to allow Villanova to be successful going forward. I'm not convinced after a two-for-four performance where it was really just late in the second half where it started. I'm not convinced that he's completely 100% back to normal, but it is the thing to watch as Villanova takes on Providence at 6.30 on Wednesday and then travels to Madison Square Garden. What Jermaine Samuels will Villanova fans see offensively? Is he ready to shoot the basketball? And will he be able to deliver? That's my key for both of the games this week and for Villanova offensively going forward this year. We'll take a break and come back on the other side, talk more about that, get some picks in and some trivia on the Villanova basketball report. Welcome back inside the Villanova Basketball Report. Bob Long, Kevin Long, and we have Kevin McLernan down in Baltimore. So let's start with the guys here in the studio. Uh, Kevin, your thoughts on that breakdown of Jermaine Samuels? We obviously teased it going into the break, but you know, do you think that that is kind of how Villanova um, will be able to you know, exploit defenses going forward. And do you think that Jermaine Samuels is even willing to shoot the ball on a consistent basis going forward? I, I think he will be willing to shoot the ball on a consistent basis. I think, you know, four shots is significantly more than he has taken even in, in the past month. He's probably taken four shots in the past month prior to this game. So this is definitely an encouraging sign, the fact that he hit two of them, you know, small sample size. But I think this guy is going to be willing to shoot the ball. I think Jay Wright is going to continue to be up in his face making him shoot the ball because they need him to space this floor. So uh, Jay, Jay Wright knows that he needs Jermaine Samuels, and I think he's going to get more out of him as we come down the home stretch here. I think Marquette is a sign of good things to come. 
Uh, and I see Jermaine only going up from here at this point. Kevin McClernand, your thoughts? Yeah, let's just hope that Jay's playing the long con here and that he's hoping that people are going to leave Samuels open um, at the end of the year and he's going to be able to hit the shots. I, I mean, we, we've seen him being able to make them, and uh, like Kevin said, those are at least something going forward that shows some progress in the last two, two games. Not even, I guess, last game. You know what's funny, Kevin? I mentioned that uh, when I was at the whiteboard there, and I said if it's a ploy, like a long-term play like you're talking about, it's the worst idea ever. Uh, I say that half in jest, though, as you did as well. I, I just, I, I, it befuddles me. And one of those things: what is the meaning of life? You know, uh, it, you know, how can a universe be endless? But if there is an end, what's beyond it? Why the hell wasn't Jermaine Samuels shooting the ball when he was wide open? I mean, these are things that we just can't know. <laughs> yeah, they're on the same level. Yep. <laughs> So I think at that point, there really is no other way to leave that. It is time for one of our favorite segments here on the Villanova Basketball Report, and that is Cats in the Wild, where we take a look at one of the guys that's left the halls of Villanova University and pursued his academic and or basketball career elsewhere. And Kevin Long, this is his baby, so who you got? So I have another very recent Villanova graduate, um, a guy who was – coming out of uh, college, one of the best prospects that Villanova has had in a little while, one of the highest drafted players that Villanova has had in a little while, and that is Mikhail Bridges. You know, Mikhail started off, he redshirted his freshman year. He was a very, you know, lanky guy. He had the body, didn't quite have the skills yet. Jay felt like he needed some extra time, but uh, Mikhail ended up leaving in four years anyways, and he, he only got three playing years out of him. Drafted 10th overall by our dear Philadelphia 76ers, then promptly traded to the Phoenix Sun where he's found himself a home over the past couple of months. Um, you know, They thought that this would be a guy to come in and start contributing right away for this team. Turns out it took him a little bit longer to get there, but he's starting to hit his stride. Uh, so far in the month of February, he's averaging 14.5 points a game right now, 4.5 rebounds a game, and 2.5 steals and 2.5 assists per game. So... Uh, Mikhail Bridges starting to turn into the 3-and-D guy that the Phoenix Suns were expecting when they traded for him. Uh, and, and very exciting for us as Villanova fans to see him having uh, that level of success in the NBA. And I think he's going to continue to build upon that. Mm, very good. Let's go to our resident NBA expert, Kevin McClernand, on this one. Could have been. Could have yeah. been a Philadelphia 76er. What do you say? Well, you know, it's all right. The Sixers just used that draft pick to get Tobias Harris, so no hard feelings there. But I was, I was really upset that he was drafted or went to Phoenix because there's a lot of wings there. Um, right now, the Suns are on a 14-game losing streak, which is the second uh, worst in the NBA right now. The Knicks are on a 16-game losing streak. So um, they're going to they're tank. Mikhail's going to get some time right now, and it's, it's going to be experience going forward for him. Yeah, absolutely. He's getting his good time right now. Uh, Jackson, who was drafted the year before, he's also getting some good time. Uh, you know, the Phoenix Suns are, are a young upstart team. Obviously, they have Aiton as well. A lot of good young talent that we know from college basketball in the past couple of years. So I'm very interested to see where this team goes from here. Uh, you know, Booker as well. So very young upstart <laughs> team. I wouldn't be surprised to see this team uh, start to turn around in the next year or two. 
That's uh, one way to put it. Uh, you name those three or four guys. Oh yeah, yeah. They have Booker as well. That's well, right. he's he's almost a, he's a, basically a superstar at this point already. <laughs> as actually, you can make the same argument for Aiton as well. But Jackson and Mikhail starting to find their way. Yeah. So next, uh, I guess I'll put him right on the spot. Kevin McLernan, do you have trivia for us tonight? <laughs> yeah. So we'll go to uh, St. John's, who's Villanova is playing. Um, do you know the last first round pick, um, from St. John's and who they were drafted by? Wow. Boy, I have one name in mind that immediately popped in my head, but if it's been this long, although I guess it could even be longer. Um, so you got anybody? I honestly am drawing a blank. I got nothing for you. I could really make myself sound stupid right now. Kevin McClernand. Go go do it. (laughs) Was Quincy Doobie picked in the first round? Um, what well, didn't Quincy Doobie play for Rutgers? Oh yeah. See, I knew I was about to make myself <laughs> stupid. One of those New York based red Big East teams. You're right. So no. Rutgers is in Jersey. <laughs> right. It's yeah. a New York team. It's the New York market, please. So Quincy Doobie po- played for Rutgers. <laughs> so the answer is a player that was drafted tenth overall. Tenth overall. Oh, wait, 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 wait. Thon Maker. No, we didn't go to St. John's. But you he was just stop going right to. now. <laughs> just stop. Just let me say the Loud answer. Loud noises. <laughs> but he was going to go to St. John's. Does that count? And he, he was drafted 10th overall, but, I mean, it's not the right answer. All right. Um, it was Mo Harkless, and he was drafted by the Philadelphia 76ers. Good call there. It's a good pick. I, I still think Thon Maker should count as extra credit. Okay. You, I mean... <laughs> Go ahead, count it. Extra credit on top of zero. <laughs> count it. Yeah. Count it. And um, So another team that we all enjoy rooting for, uh, the Lehigh Mountain Hawks are playing right now against yeah, Bucknell, uh, winning 38-35 to 35 at halftime. Mike Muscala. And in 2012, <laughs> Lehigh defeated Duke in the first round, led by, we all know, Mackie McKnight. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> they were... There was another 15 seed that uh, defeated a two seed that year. Do you remember who it was and who they defeated? Yes, I do. Yeah, you should. Because <laughs> <laughs> you had them winning the national championship. Oh, yeah. Thank you. That helped me think of the team that they beat. I couldn't think of that. Um, yeah. I believe it was North Dakota State. Ah, so close. South Dakota State? No, well, not that close. Not I that guess. close. Norfolk State. Norfolk State. <laughs> Norfolk One of those State. green state something or others. Yeah, there you go. See, Rutgers, Norfolk, sh- North Dakota State. Should have, should have known Norfolk State. The pride of the MEAC. Yes, Kyle O'Quinn. Sure. Yep. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and I believe they beat Louisville. They beat Missouri. Oh. Missouri? It was on that. It was on that couple of years where Bob kept getting the his national championship bounced in the first year, first oh, round. That was a different one. That was Kenneth Free beat Louisville. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> and Moorhead State. That was good. Yep. I enjoyed the pools that year. <laughs> yeah. uh, so that's all. That's all I had for trivia, though. Oh man, but those were those were so much fun that we're gonna need to get to come up with another one. All right. Well, do you guys want the under overs for the week? Oh. Yeah, sure. <laughs> well, I mean, what? while we think about it, I don't have another trivia. What do you want? I'm just think of something on the spot? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I got nothing for you. Okay. Florida Gulf Coast. Name those players, Bob. Why I look at what you oh, want to do. Um, uh, Roosevelt something. 
Okay. Yeah. Good talk. Um, so uh, Penn State is hosting Michigan tomorrow, and they are seven-point dogs. This is not my number. This is their number, and this is a it's a a bad Penn State team that keeps games like lose games at the very end. Michigan big. Yeah, uh, Michigan has struggled a little bit recently compared to what they were doing before, but I'm going to stick with Michigan as well. I'm I'm taking Penn State. Really? I, think I, somehow, I don't believe that. I, I think somehow they're gonna they're gonna keep it close, and I mean they've lost basically every. I mean they've lost eleven Big Ten games, I think, but they've all been close. Uh, another game tomorrow is Kentucky is hosting LSU, and they're nine point favorites. That's a very interesting line and game. Um, I think I'm going to take Kentucky there. The nine points, I don't know what to do with, but I do think that they're going to win fairly convincingly and beat the Tigers. Yeah, that, hmm, that's a tough one. At Kentucky, nine points is a lot, but Kentucky's a good team. You know, what? Not convinced that LSU is. <laughs> give, me, give me LSU to cover. I think they're going to cover. We'll find a way. Keep it close. And then we got two – oh, sorry. I'm, I'm taking uh, Kentucky to cover. Um, I just don't believe in LSU just yet. Um, and Kentucky, uh, they have a game against Tennessee later in the week too, so we're going to really see what uh, Kentucky's made of this year or this week. Uh, and we're going to – we haven't I haven't done this yet all year, but we're going to include the Villanova game, the Sunday game against St. John's uh, in our pick and let's put Villanova as three-and-a-half-point favorites at St. John's. Wow. Mm. Wow. I think I'm taking the Johnnies outright, unfortunately. So wow. I'm going to go with St. John's. Hmm. Taking the Johnnies. Yeah, they uh, they played them tough at the pavilion. You would have to think that things aren't going to get any easier for them at Madison Square Garden. But you know what? I, I believe in my man Phil Booth turning it around. I think when he goes, the rest of this team goes. I think you know they're going to have a little fire underneath of them after that Marquette loss. I think they bounce back big this week and get two big wins. So you you, you think uh, they're going to cover? Cover as well. I'm sorry. Yes, okay. they're going to cover. Get a big win and win by <laughs> two. Big win by three. So we're all on different pages here because I think Nova wins the game but does not cover the three and a half. Um, and then the final one, we have Ohio State at Michigan State. Um, we'll say two and a half because Michigan State's been struggling recently. So we'll say two and a half point favorites for Michigan State. Okay, then I like Michigan State. But I'm not a huge fan of this team. Um, I'm also not a huge fan of how they're the media darling every single year because there was a time probably six years ago where they went to six Final Fours in 12 years and had this mantra as a team that peaked at the right time. I got news for you. This team hasn't peaked at the right time for a very long time. And there's only enough Middle Tennessee games before, you know, there's something going on in East Lansing. Another 15 and 2. No, wasn't it? Oh yeah, it was. 15 and 2. I was thinking 314. But didn't they lose to somebody else when they were a 3 seed as well? Semi recently? I'm not 100% sure. Anyway, I like I, I like them to win that game probably by seven to eight points, and I am picking Michigan State at the Breslin Center. Yeah, I agree. I'm not huge on Michigan State, but it's it's more that I am 
less big on Ohio State. I, I really just uh, don't think they're playing all that well this year. I don't think they're up to the normal Ohio State standard. Uh, I think Michigan State will cover. Talk to me about your boy Chris Holtman here, Kevin McClernand. No, no, he's not my boy. Why is he my boy? <laughs> uh, because he was the Butler guy before now. Well, and you love that, Butler. I mean, yes and no, but I mean, I, I wish they beat Duke. That doesn't, that doesn't make Butler like. But yeah, I'm, I'm agreeing with you, uh, Michigan State. I think they. I, I just don't believe in Ohio State. We talked about them earlier in the year. I think they lost the first couple games. Um, in Big Ten play, I just don't believe in them. And even though uh, Michigan State hasn't been playing well, I think Ward uh, can dominate down low enough. I don't believe in your line. Let me throw that one your way. I don't know where to put this line because I don't really believe in either team. Yeah. Fair. Fair point. Okay. What would you come up with from a trivia question since we started doing this? Uh, nothing. All right, folks. That's all we got here tonight. <laughs> I guess it is. Anything, Kev? I got nothing. All right. How about you, Kevin Long? Uh, No, I'm sorry. I didn't come up with the trivia question on the spot there. (laughs) All right, I got one for you guys. Uh, Who's the Major League Baseball pitcher in the history of the game who has the most complete game, one nothing losses? Really? (laughs) Cole Hamels. That is the worst pick I've ever heard in my entire life. <laughs> I just remember one year he lost like three games, one nothing. Right. Any they weren't they weren't game? complete. That's games, actually though. very impressive. They were they were not complete games, oh, but okay. I mean my guess would be Nolan Ryan. Yeah, that's that's a pretty good guess. I'll I'll throw out something else. Cy Young. No, but that's the right era, Kevin Long. It was Walter Johnson with thirty eight. Thirty eight. The Senators. One Nothing, complete game, losses. There you go. We need an another interesting factoid for you. Yeah, we needed another trivia question. I didn't know we were going all sports. I mean, we could have got uh, could have gone crazy then. I mean, geez. There's still time. There is, but I'm done. All right. Hey, Kevin McLernan, we appreciate you being with us always here. Good stuff on the two, count them, two trivia, uh, trivia questions that you gave us and uh, three uh, pick ems Four. Four. How many passes? Six. Four. Four. Got nothing. Gene Hackman. Hoosiers. All right, I think it's about time for us to go. (laughs) Thanks, everybody, for being with us here tonight on the Villanova Basketball Report. Villanova drops their first game of the season to Marcus Howard and the Marcus Howards. Uh, They return to action on Wednesday night at 6.30 against Providence and then on the road Sunday at 5 o'clock against St. John's. For Kevin McLernan in Baltimore, Kevin Long up here in Bluebell sitting next to me. I am Bob Long saying so long, and we'll see everybody next week for another edition of the Villanova Basketball Report. Take care.